Good morning. You wouldn't know it to look at me now, but I graduated from college at 110 pounds. Ever hear that expression, 98-pound weakling? That was me graduating from high school. Always one of the smallest guys in my class, I dealt with a lot of bullies growing up. They operated by that principle of might makes right. I always hated that principle. Sometimes I folded and submitted to the bully. Think a Christmas story. But other times, I stood my ground. Now I learned to fist fight by leading with my chin. So I didn't come out on top very often. But sometimes, not often, I gave worse than I got. Think Rambo. Well, okay. Think a Christmas story with tears. <clears throat> but those humiliations and defeats kindled an even deeper hatred of bullying within me, whether directed at me or at another. <clears throat> like when I started a new job 20 years ago, the manager there would verbally abuse these two guys, and so I stepped in with an object lesson every time he went after them. I don't recommend this course of action. There were probably better ways of handling it, but I felt I had to stand in the breach and defend these two. Now, jobs weren't plentiful back then, but despite the risk of being fired, it was not about to let this guy get away with bullying. Well, the manager got upset, and he asked me to stop. I told him as long as he abused others, I'd be right there taking him down. He told me he was going to go to the CEO and have me fired. And I said, knock yourself out, pal. Well, the CEO laughed him out of his office. So then he tried physical intimidation. Now, I was a pudgy 40-year-old. He was 6'3", 29, and in the prime of life. So all five foot, six inches and a quarter of me reared up and said, make my day. And that's when I received my first death threat. Bullies. You know who bullied Israel? The Philistines. And they're at it once again in 1 Samuel 17. Now, some of God's people had already fallen under their tyranny. And the Philistines were poised to march straight through the heart of Elah into Judah. Earlier in 1 Samuel, God's people had pleaded for a king who would be their hero and protect them from the Philistines. But King Saul wasn't the hero this day. It was an unlikely youth by the name of David. You know where else we see heroes? In chapter 11 of Hebrews, better known as the Hall of Faith, but in that chapter, we see real heroes of the faith like Noah, who stood up to an entire evil generation, and Moses, who stood up to Pharaoh. You know what else we see? We see an unlikely hero in Abel, who simply offered a sacrifice with the right attitude. Nothing grand, nothing spectacular. He simply lived life by faith. You know what? You and I can be a hero by simply living life by faith. Today in 1 Samuel 17, the Lord shows us what it takes to be a hero of the faith. And I have four points. The first is I can face challenges with courage. God's providence prepares me to be a hero. I can do heroic work by faith. And I will honor the true hero of the faith. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us today through your inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. Reach into our hearts, Lord, and show us how we too can serve as heroes of the faith.
Amen. Well, as we started before the prayer, our first point is I can face challenges with courage. Let's take a look at 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 3. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdomen. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. The Philistines had subjected Israel to tyranny many times, and in verse 1, we see they're at it again. Now, they were the coastal people, while Israel was the mountain people. So the Philistines had to attack uphill, which wasn't easy to do. And to make it even harder, Israel used Soko and Azekah as guardian towns right at the start of the foothills. But in verse 1, the Philistines have already captured the guardian towns, and they are poised to march through the valley of Elah into the heart of Judah. The men of Israel under Saul marched to Elah, and something strange happens. They block the Philistines. Now, it's strange because the Philistines were the technologically advanced army of the day. In 1 Samuel 13, we learn that only the Philistines had iron weapons. And that's important because an iron sword can shatter a bronze sword. But here, when confronted by Saul's army, they stopped their advance. Maybe they didn't have enough iron swords to go around. Or maybe the commander was too cautious. But whatever the reason, in verse 16, we learn that a standoff develops for 40 days. Now, standoffs during this period of time were often ended through a battle of champions. And in 4 through 7, we find a description of the Philistine champion. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. So Goliath is a scary dude. He's nine and a half feet tall, and he is decked out for war. He has a bronze helmet that weighed 40 pounds. He has scale armor, which has overlapping metal plates that absorb strikes, and he has bronze greaves, which are metal shields for the lower legs. You could hit this guy all day with a bronze sword, and you might bruise him. And then there's his offensive weapons. A javelin is a long, thin pole with a spear tip. It's a man-powered missile for killing at a long distance. His spear, oy, it's heavy duty. The tip alone weighs 15 pounds. Now a spear is used for close-in combat. You thrust out and you jab up. My sons could lift a spear like that. I'm not sure that they could jab effectively. And I wouldn't even try. And in verse 51, we learned that he had an iron sword. Goliath was a mighty man able to move and fight with all that weight. And in one taunt, Goliath demoralizes Israel and he exposes King Saul as a joke by issuing his champion challenge. Verse 8. 
he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Why? Why are you here? I think he's saying that your opposition to the Philistine conquest of Israel is pointless. Just give in. But question 135 of the larger catechism asks, what are the duties required in the sixth commandment? One of those duties is the just defense against violence. Francis Schaeffer in the Christian Manifesto said, since tyranny is satanic, not to resist it is to resist God. To resist tyranny is to honor God. Why? Why was Israel there? Well, first, they were there to oppose Philistine tyranny and slavery. All men are created in the image of God. To take away a person's freedom and to reduce them to a mechanoid is evil. It's an affront to the dignity that God has placed in everyone. And so whether they succeed or fail, their opposition is not pointless. And secondly, they were there to demonstrate faith in the coming of the Messiah by trusting in God in all circumstances, even circumstances that seem hopeless. And third, they are to love their brothers in the captured towns by freeing them from the Philistines. Did you notice that Goliath doesn't address Saul? He speaks directly to Saul's soldier as as if Saul doesn't even matter. But Saul is the king. Decisions concerning the welfare of the nation are his. And so we see an attempt to sow dissension within Israel. Verse 9 Goliath proposes the terms of the battle. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Notice in verse 10 how he tries to goad them by insulting the people of God. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. That word defy in Hebrew is to taunt with an accusation. And so Goliath is accusing the Israelites of cowardice. He says, give me a man, if there's a man among you. In 1 Samuel 9, 2, we are told that Saul was the tallest guy in Israel. And so I think Goliath aimed this taunt directly at Saul. It was Saul's opportunity to be a hero in the faith. He could have stepped up. He could have trusted that God would deliver him the victory. In fact, any soldier there could have stepped up that day to be the hero. But in verse 11, we read, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Israel failed to meet the challenge with courage that day. Will you and I face the hardships of life with courage? Like a bully at school, work, or home? Like health issues, money issues? like a pandemic that keeps us from worshiping together. All of these obstacles can seem like an unbeatable giant. The real question is if I will respond in faith with courage. With each Goliath I encounter, I can choose to see a huge, powerful opponent that I have no hope of defeating. Or I can choose to see each Goliath as an opportunity to glorify God by living by faith. Courage and faith, or fear and cowardice. Those are my choices, 
And those were Israel's choices. And according to our text, the Israelites chose badly. They failed to meet the challenge with courage and faith that day and for the next 39 days. But even so, God's providence was at work preparing a hero. And that brings us to our second point. God's providence prepares me to be a hero. Hey, kids. In fact, any kid from 2 to 92, God can prepare you to be a hero. So let's take a look at how God prepared David in 14 and 15. David was the youngest. Now, the three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. David started as a shepherd, where he learned to care for others. He had to make sure that the sheep were fed and watered. And to do that, he had to learn to plan ahead. So you can't keep sheep grazing in the same field day after day. Because if you do, they'll graze that field into dust and then starve. He learned that the weak needed protection. Wanting to protect the weak is a good thing. But doing the work to be able to protect another is something else. And so he practiced with the sling so he could actually defend the weak. He even gained skill in taking on far more powerful opponents like a lion and a bear, as we'll see in a bit. Hey, kids, do you think that David was out in the field saying to himself, God is preparing me to defeat Goliath in the future? I don't think so either. Do you think it's important to know when two trains traveling at 50 miles per hour toward each other will meet? I don't think so either. But is it possible that God is preparing you to be a hero by studying math? Could God be preparing you to design a bridge or send a satellite to Jupiter? Your job is to learn so that you can do tomorrow. Now, David went back and forth to the king because he also had a job in music therapy. His music would ease Saul's black moods. And later in life, God used David and his musical talents to write much of the book of Psalms. Here at Providence, we see some young people helping us to worship in music, like the three Mengus teenagers that were up here. And that's a good thing. God is preparing you through all that practice, so keep it up. You know what else David learned at the king's court? He learned courtly manners and how to deal with advisors, how to watch over the land and dispense justice. Even then, God was preparing David to be the future king of Israel. If you're saying, oh, you know, come on, Al, none of us kids have an opportunity to sit with a king, think again. Your mom and dad rule over your family. Mom, dad, are you teaching your kids how to deal with others? how to care for your property, how to make just decisions? And are you teaching in both word and deed? What else David learned? He learned his way around. He had to travel from Bethlehem to Jerusalem all by himself, and it was a dangerous journey. No maps, no cars, no state troopers keeping order. But his journeys enabled him to meet and relate to all kinds of people along the way. I grew up in a blue-collar family but I went to work in a white-collar field, and I was not prepared. When I started, I worked on the seventh floor of this building, and being an extraordinarily patient guy, I loved when the elevator stopped at every floor on the way up in the morning. Not. 
So I would take the express elevator from the first floor to the ninth and walk down two flights, much quicker and much happier. What I didn't know was that the admiral in charge of the place would park with his staff in the basement of the building. And that express elevator, it went from the basement to the first floor to the ninth. And so one day I pressed the button and the elevator doors opened. I walked in and I came face to face with Admiral Inman. Now I was 21 years old, completely out of my depth. I didn't about face. But before I could exit the elevator, the doors closed. I hung my head and sighed while well, all these guys laughed for nine floors. Longest express elevator ride in my life. I was not prepared, but you can be. So learn from your mom and dad how to relate to others regardless of their station in life. So David learned all these skills and he held all these jobs as a teen. You know what else he learned? Humility. In verses 12 through 15, we learned that while David was caring for the sheep and caring for Saul, um, <clears throat> three of David's brothers were in the army. Look at 17. Then Jesse said to David, his son, take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these 10 loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. And so his dad gives him another job, delivery boy. Now David could have said, um, Dad, I'm the musician to the king. I don't do deliveries. But he didn't. He was an obedient son. And we know one more thing about how God was preparing David to be a hero. He knew God's word. In the next hour, we will see that his challenge to Goliath is based on the word of God. And I think that that's the most important preparation that you and I can do. So we see God that prepared David through learning the word of God, learning to care for the weak, learning skill with the sling, learning to deal with all kinds of people, and learning humility. But God did more than prepare David. His providence arranged for his brothers to be in the army. And it also arranged for a kind-hearted father who cared for his boys to get David into the right spot at the right time. Look at 20 through 23. So David arose early in the morning and left with the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. And then David left his baggage in care of the baggage keeper and he ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion. The Philistine from Gath named Goliath was coming up from the army of the Philistines and he spoke these same words and David heard them. When David obeyed his dad and took the supplies to his brothers, he had no idea that today was the day God would use him in a mighty way. He just did as he was directed. Hey, teenagers, if you were asked to babysit for a couple, would you see it as an opportunity? or something to be avoided. Maybe an evening out would help that couple in their marriage. You wouldn't know that, nor should you. But would you seize the opportunity to step up and be the hero? Well, David gets there just in time to see the army going forth in battle array and shouting the war cry. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this strange. 
For 40 days, they've been going forth, hearing Goliath's challenge, and running away. Yet, here's the army getting worked up for battle with war cries. I mean, by this time, I expect the, the war cry would be more like, yay, God. But as I read the passage in my head, I'm hearing, yay, God, today's the day we're going to rescue our countrymen and rid Israel of the Philistines. Never hire me to write the war cries. But I think this is important. I think we learn from this that each day starts off fresh, not weighed down by yesterday's defeats. In 1 John 1, 9, we read, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter how badly we have failed the day before, so there's David in the battle line talking with his brothers when in verse 23, Goliath reissues his challenge for the 40th time. The men of Saul's army hear the challenge for the 40th time. And in 24 and 25, we see that they fail the test for the 40th time. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So Goliath embarrasses the men of Israel before a boy and they try to save face. Have you seen this guy? Even the king doesn't want to go out and fight him. He's offered riches, his daughter to anyone who will get rid of him. He's even going to exempt that man from taxes and further military service. That's how bad this guy is. Can't blame us for cowering. We're just being realistic. David can't believe his ears. 26 and 27. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. So David asked for clarification. But notice how he asks. He words his question to point out that Goliath is just another Philistine. Nothing special. He says, Goliath is uncircumcised. Circumcision in the Old Testament church was a sign of entrance into the visible church. Goliath's not a member. The Lord is not on his side. There is nothing to fear. Remember we said that part of David's preparation was knowing the word of God? Well, David knows that Israel is God's chosen people. He knows Israel's history and all that God had done to bring Israel into the promised land. And so he asks, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? He applies biblical doctrine to the situation. It's not right for a Philistine to taunt God's people, nor to subject them to tyranny. Recognizing right from wrong takes us from preparation to action. And that brings us to our third point. I can do heroic work by faith. If God has prepared you and he's put you in a position to be a hero, you must have the courage to act. And by asking questions, David begins to act. But notice, 
he's immediately met with negativity, 28 through 30. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? And then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. Well, so there's David trying to show the men that Goliath isn't the obstacle that they think he is. But Eliab gets really mad and he bullies David. He denigrates his work as a shepherd and he questions his motives. Does Eliab really know what's in David's heart? No. He assumes he knows. And so he challenges David. Why have you come down? Looky there. Isn't that what Goliath asked the men of Israel? How often do we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ as the world treats people? Now, when a brother or a sister in Christ is in willful violation of God's commands, we have a duty and a responsibility to say something, to intervene. When a brother or a sister in Christ is engaged in foolish behavior, according to the scriptures, we have a duty and a responsibility. But when the scriptures are silent, we should be too. And so David asks, what have I done now? So evidently this happened a lot with Eliab. But consider the question. There is no violation of the law, nor was it foolish. David was there because his dad ordered it. In one sense, though, Eliab is right. When we act, we must have motives based in the word of God. Eliab didn't. He wasn't privy to what God had planned for David. And I bet at the end of the day, he felt pretty foolish. I think that Eliab teaches us that we need to be careful with our assumptions about others. Watch what we say, how we say it, especially when there is no foolish or sinful behavior. Have you or I belittled a fellow Christian because we disagree with them over politics or doctrine or even mass? Maybe we should think twice before speaking. Eliab was passed over as the future king. Have we assassinated the character of our brother because of jealousy? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Well, after Eliab, after asking Eliab what, the moral, law, what moral law he had violated, David just walks away. God prepared him to deal with all kinds of people, even a bullying brother. And so David ignored him, but Saul didn't ignore David, 31 through 32. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. When David played the harp for Saul, he was a background guy. I doubt the king ever spoke to him. Saul doesn't even know his family name in verse 58 of this chapter. But David's words make their way to Saul. And that tells me that the warriors listened and that his words pierced their heart. The result was a stir. And Saul wants to know what is going on. 
I love 32. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, I am absolutely certain that if the Israelites had trains, David would have said something like, uh, Hey, King Saul, the men's hearts are failing because they're letting their emotions of fear run away with them. We need to know in our mind what the truth is. And then we need to use our mind to inform our will. And it will keep our emotions in check. At least he'd say something like that if he read Vince's book. But if you notice, David doesn't just preach. He backs up his words. He says, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. This is on me, Saul. I'll take care of it for you. But more negativity. His brother told him that his motives were impure. And Saul tells him that he's not good enough. 33. Then Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him. For you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. If you notice, David doesn't directly contradict or ignore Saul. He tells a story to show that he's an experienced warrior, 34 and 35. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. And then he says, hey, Saul, experience doesn't matter. 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. In the face of this faith, Saul relents. But then he tries to gird David for battle with his armor in 38 through 40. Now there are many ways to accomplish a task. Saul just assumes that David should do it his way. And so David says, okay, I'll try it. But then he's honest with Saul and he says, this isn't going to work. See, David needs to be David. And he decides upon his sling. Do you see the risk that Saul is taking? Saul is the king and an experienced warrior. And he is placing the fate of the nation in the hands of an untried boy. But to Saul's credit, he doesn't force David to do it his way. And that, to me, is Saul expressing trust in the Lord. Well, Goliath isn't impressed. 41 through 44. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Goliath is a man who trusts in himself and judges by physical prowess. He's insulted that they send out a boy with a stick. But that's actually the point. Did you notice that Goliath curses David? But David's first act is to bless Goliath with the gospel. 45 through 47. Then David said to the Philistine, 
You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have taunted. I come in the name of the Lord. Goliath, the Lord is sending me to you as a personal representative to preach to you. And the message preached is fourfold. The first part is you have sinned. You've not just taunted the army of Israel. You've taunted God himself. Goliath, this is your opportunity to repent. The second part, verse 46, details the consequence of unbelief. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give you give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth. Goliath, death is at hand. This is your last opportunity to repent. Tough words, blunt words. But sometimes words like these are called for. The third part of the message is at the end of verse 46. That all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. This battle will have consequences that will echo throughout the world for all time, Goliath. God exists. He is mighty, he is just, and he is good. A simple shepherd boy is going to defeat you, Goliath, because God is the victor. And the last part of that message is 47. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. The assembly is a word used to refer to the church. As his people, we can forget that God is in control. We can lose faith in his sovereign protection. We can be overwhelmed by all the troubles of the world. But David knows that this miracle will strengthen God's people, and it will show once and for all that we must trust in the Lord our God. Well, Goliath didn't have a chance. Not entirely accurate. See, David warns him about what's going to happen. Goliath could have fallen to his knees and repented. He could have asked God for forgiveness. But Goliath didn't believe. You know, it still happens today. I asked a friend, if he died, would God allow him into heaven? His answer, I hope I make the cut. Now, you only say that if you believe you will make the cut but no one does. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. God's holiness demands perfect obedience all the time. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 17, 10. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. No one can earn forgiveness for their sin by doing good works or by being obedient. That's the baseline. That's expected. Trying to make the cut. What kind of a plan is that for preparing for eternity? I'll just do my best and hope things work out. The person hoping to make the cut doesn't understand the depth of their sin. My friend actually said the sixth commandment was easy to keep as he had never murdered anyone. But Jesus says calling someone a fool is murder. Worse, if you and I can make the cut by doing our best, 
Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross was not needed. God's word is clear. If you want to prepare for eternity, repent and trust in Christ. If you die in a car crash going home from church, will you hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will you hear, I never knew you? Are you trusting in being a good person or in the righteousness of Jesus? The tomb is empty so that the whole world knows that God exists, that he is just, that he is good, and he is the victor. It's not too late to repent and come to Christ. Talk to Jesus today. But it was too late for Goliath. He made his choice. 48 and 49. Then it happened that the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David. And David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. So in verse 48, David turns from words to actions and runs to the challenge. He didn't hesitate. He shows his faith in the Lord by running to Goliath. And notice the balance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Now, when my David was quarterbacking, I could hardly catch the ball when he did a three-step drop and threw. Now, Dave will tell you that I could never catch the ball. But when he would sprint out, run to the line and throw, not only couldn't I catch it, the few times I tried, I broke a finger. Goliath doesn't just toss the throne, the stone, expecting God to do the rest. He runs to Goliath. He gives himself the advantage of combining his forward momentum with that of the sling. And it had enough force to knock out Goliath. But David wasn't done, 50 and 51. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. And then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Look at the effect that David's victory has on the enemies of God in 51b. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. You remember David saying to Goliath that he would be killed so that all the world knew that God was in Israel? Well, the Philistines now know that God exists and he is in Israel and he protects his people. They should have fallen to their knees and repented, but they didn't. 52, the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines along the way <clears throat> lay along the way to Sharem, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. And so we see the faith of God's people is renewed. Fear was turned to courage. They pursue the Philistines and slaughter them. The threat to Judah is eliminated. The captured cities are free. God's people are enriched by the plundering of the enemy camps. David stepped up to the challenge, and God's people were blessed. Are you ready to step up? Providence exists to make disciples. If the Lord blesses us with growth, we need people to take on new responsibilities, perhaps to even take on additional tasks. When the Lord presents an opportunity, are you ready to say, this is on me, Lord, 
I'll take care of it for you. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Are you, create, are you ready to be courageous, to walk in those good works? Are you ready to stretch yourself with a new task like teaching adult Sunday school? Oh, I could never do that. Why not? If David could take on Goliath, you can take on a couple of adults. We need teachers for children's Sunday school. I know that a room of five-year-olds is more scary than Goliath, but I bet you can do it. You're ready to help with children's church. We need more deacons. We could use more elders. Are you ready to be a hero by being the best dad or mom possible? Are you ready to be a hero by being the best kid that you can be? Are you ready to model the greatest hero of the faith, Jesus Christ? And that brings us to our fourth point. I will honor the true hero of the faith. David was a hero who faced and conquered a bully. And as people, we face two huge bullies in life, death and tax. <clears throat> Sorry. Sin and death. We are created in the image of God, but sin distorts and it twists that image. It's a powerful force that's enslaved us. Who can stand against it? And death hangs over us. It's an abomination, the absence of life. We try to ignore it, but it's always there, lurking in the future. And like the Israelite army, we simply cannot stand before these bullies. Thank God for Jesus Christ. He's rescued us from the grip of sin. He stood up to every temptation that you and I face, and yet he never sinned. He lived a life of righteousness for you and me, and by sacrificing himself on the cross, he has paid the penalty demanded by God's justice. For all those who make a true confession of faith, for all those called who repent of their sin and trust in Christ's victory, he has defeated sin and death. My bullying co-worker may have marked me for death, but thank God for Jesus Christ who's marked me for eternal life. Jesus is our true hero, and we can honor him by facing the challenges in our life with courage, by preparing to be a hero, and by doing the work in faith. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for David, for his life and the defeat of Goliath. Help us to remember David's courage and faith as we go forth from here to serve. Amen.